0: Welcome to Taking the Lead, a podcast where top executives share their insights on leadership and talent development. I'm your host, Mary Herman, Managing Director of Executive Coaching at BPI Group. BPI Group helps people and organizations develop and change to enhance their resilience and success. In this, our inaugural episode, we'll speak with David Petratus, CEO of Allegiant, about his experience with that company's IPO and the concept of unfiltered conflict. Welcome, Dave.
1: Good to be with you, Mary.
0: I want to start by asking you to define a term I've heard you use before, unfiltered conflict. What does that mean within an organization and why is it important?
1: So I think unfiltered conflict is a state of dialogue that we want to achieve in our teams, at our business, and uh, think a little bit about in a family situation, sometimes we talk about the undiscussables. The audience may also think about this as radical candor. In my mind, successful businesses and teams are able to discuss the undiscussables. They're able to have unfiltered conflict to be able to talk about the important issues that can be impacting an organization or the team.
0: I know that was something you used at Legion when you took over in late 2013. Explain the situation and how Unfiltered Conflict helped you lead the company.
1: We had a massive task. We had to disconnect from the mothership Ingersoll ran in a short amount of time, about 120 days. It was important that the team that had to come together very quickly was talking frankly, openly about the challenge that was facing the IPO of a $2 billion company. So the intensity was high and there was no time to soft sell anything. We had work that had to be done.
0: You've told me how important it is for leadership teams to really know Each other, with the Chicago Bulls in the 1990s as an example. What are some other examples that show how that type of leadership development and team building works?
1: Number one, the Bulls rolled off six championships under the leadership and team that was created, and they knew each other at a much deeper level. They did that off the court. I think leadership teams have to spend time knowing each other deeply knowing how each other are wired. I think you can use team building experiences to create some common experiences. If we go back to the Bulls, part of the experience was the practice court. It was game situations. But they also, in the film rooms, as they critique their performance on the court, They used unfiltered conflict. Michael Jordan would be very stern. You know, you're not playing hard enough. Uh, You're not rebounding defense, whatever. Teams have to be able to do that as well. I took a leadership team at another company to a cooking experience. We had a common experience around high-pressured, high-performance cooking, but where the radical candor or the unfiltered conflict came in was. We had to critique each other's meals. And I would say that the pizza was burnt. The ice cream was like soup. And we initially were unable to describe that. We wanted to be nice. And frankly, we were wasting our time. Good teams don't have the ability to waste time. And I think teams sometimes are too nice. And if people are honest with each other, you can uh, drive higher performance.
0: Such a common piece of feedback that we receive is that we're too polite to one another and really aren't saying what's on our mind. So this idea of unfiltered conflict resonates. When you zoom back a bit, Dave, can you describe your commitment to leadership development and how it's evolved over the years?
1: I'm in my 38th year of management and leadership beginning about 1988 I had some big jobs I had diverse teams in some cases I had people working for me that were old enough to be my father or my mother and uh, how do you get that diversity to work together good teams are made good teams invest time on trying to be better team members and uh, It's a belief I got onto early, and I've used it at every stop and multiple stops, I think, to drive higher performance. Go back to the sports team analogy. In terms of the level of talent, what makes a good team on the court or on the field, it's generally not the quality of the athlete. They're all at a very high level to begin with. It's how those people work together, how they execute their strategies, and feedback, and making the investment of time to drive higher team performance is important. Again, my message here is you've got to invest in the time of the team with the goal of taking the performance, which is often around communication and clarity and problems. You've got to invest that time to be able to take talented people to a higher level.
0: Time is that precious commodity that is so difficult for many of the leadership teams that we work with. Can you talk a little bit about how your teams embrace that?
1: So we talk with the team in a couple of ways. How are you investing your time in terms of your personal and team improvement? How are we committing the resources of the organization in terms of team and business improvement? So we have a system of operation here that engages our executive, which is the most expensive meter in the corporation. And we set it as an objective to try and drive efficiency, create management capacity as part of our operating methods. I do that at the board level, I do that at the executive level, and I think it's key. Remember, if this is my most precious commodity and it's leadership time, how can I make that more efficient like I would a manufacturing process, a selling process? So it's a focus of the organization that we're using continuous improvement to create time that we can invest in team building activities, self-discovery activities, and time to plan our day.
0: One of the other things you've said in the past is that building trust begins with opening yourself up so that you're vulnerable. And you've just touched on a little bit of that, Dave, in your description. I can't imagine that was part of the standard business playbook when you started your career.
1: So when I started on the factory floor, you had titles like uh, general foreman. Let me tell you, the general was the baddest guy in the factory. I think it's important in today's business environment that people know each other deeply. It's been a big change, I think, in business. But uh, again, we spend a lot of time with our teams and with our coworkers. When we know each other deeply, I think everybody behaves better.
0: Is opening up yourself in this way always embraced? by all your team members? I'm guessing not, but if you make the case for its importance, do you feel like people embrace it?
1: When I first brought this concept to a legion, and we were creating the team, there were people that were rolling their eyes as I exposed intimacy about my own leadership behaviors and self. There will be resistance. It's a commitment that you've got to have on your agenda as you bring your teams together, and you have to chip away with it. You also have to look to facilitate different methods to be able to get people to open up. And again, I think the better an individual knows how they're wired, and that may not always be common as teams come together, but the better they understand themselves, the more likely they are to chip away and expose themselves and it follows a philosophy the better i know myself the better i know the people around me the better that team understands the strengths i bring to the table as well as those team strengths each team has a team signature based on the different personalities the better the team opens up to sharing their strengths, challenges, happiness, suffering, I think uh, the better the team can complement each other. Remember, many hands make light work. The weakest link in the chain is the weak part of the team. If everybody understands that, I think the team will naturally work to complement or offset that and you get higher performance.
0: Dave, your team is a global team. Can you talk about some of the challenges that are inherent with a global team?
1: First of all, you've got people that have walked different paths. You've got people that look at the world and problems through different lenses. You've got to be able to get a team to look at different problems from each other's lenses. That could be a Chinese lens. It could be a French lens. It could be a Latin American lens. It could be an American lens. In my career, I had a couple benefits that were important learning opportunities to me. In the 90s, I was a leader of a business and I was the only U.S. representative. Everyone else was French or Asian. I learned a lot about international team dynamics and how different cultures look at different problems. When you're working in diverse teams, you have to be sensitive that people react, look, behave different in different environments. If you can get the different team members sometimes to share those perspectives, if you can get especially Americans to understand different cultures and reactions, I think you can get better solutions. I was also benefited in my career, Mary, uh, when I was out in California, there were 26 different nationalities in the business. It was a very diverse culture. I believed that we were better problem solvers by taking those different global perspectives and applying it to our business. Problems are often solved using different methods, and if we put ourselves in a silo, my silo would be, I'm a a guy that grew up in Iowa. If I stay in that silo, it discounts many of the perspectives. If I can open up and blow out of that silo and look at views from different cultural areas, it strengthens the business, it strengthens the problem solving, it strengthens the I think overall customer satisfaction and engagement of the team, but it's not something that people just show up and are able to do.
0: I know you speak to Allegiance interns every summer. How do you make sure to get through to younger employees year after year? How do you change your message?
1: I believed a decade ago, I was a very powerful communicator in leading 17,000 employees. That playbook does not work today, especially with younger employees. When I think about how I communicate, especially with younger employees, physical presence and communicating face-to-face, frequently important, especially in coaching situations, in writing, and then electronically. That can be through things like Twitter, Yammer, which we use internally, certainly email. But you have to, in my mind, use all available tools to be able to communicate. And I push strongly on the physical, making sure that we reinforce that business is still done with people and relationships. I think as an older generation, I've got to emphasize the importance of people doing business with people but also reinforce that with modern means that could be electronic as well as the old fashioned in writing. You've got to use all tools.
0: Dave, will you talk a little bit about where you were born and your upbringing? We'd love to hear a little bit more about how that relates to where you sit today.
1: I grew up in Council Bluffs, Iowa, which is right in the heart of the North American continent. One of six children, my father died when I was five, and I started working. I've been playing taxes since the age of 14. I've been working and have a variety of work experiences, probably from the age of uh, nine or 10. Lots of things shaped that early wiring that has helped made me successful. But as I communicate to young people and even with my team, it's like, understand the strengths of your psyche, your worrying, influence your style of communication, your decision-making under pressure, how you think and grow from it has helped me in my later life. But understanding those early roots, uh, important differentiator, I think for me at, at 60 years old.
0: I had one more question I'd love to ask you. The pace of change when the spinoff came, right? There was We were in a fast cadence there. That presented certain challenges. Can you talk about what those challenges were?
1: You know, as I said, when we created the company, take a $2 billion company and IPO it, a global business. For example, we had 200 service agreements that were provided by the former parent that had to be... Completed within 12 months, that's massive. That's probably three years worth of work. Bring a new team together quickly, make sure they execute. I had to make decisions on that. And uh, it was important that uh, we move at an extremely fast pace. We were successful at that. I think one of the things that was important for the team is to recognize those successes. I would say if you look at the last five years, you'd say, hey, you successfully completed the IPO. You know, it must have settled down. That's not been the case. The new challenge is digitization or technology affecting the company. And I would say similar to the pace of change with the IPO, the pace of change actually accelerating. And uh, we've worked at Allegiant to try to increase the learning in terms of what digitization means. And it puts more pressure on prioritization, which I think goes back to team development. You partner with me, Mary, and BPI on a variety of fronts to uh, make sure we're clear on where we want to go. Is the strategy correct? And then properly prioritize our human resources and our financial capital to be able to properly move the company at a fast pace.
0: Thank you for joining us today, Dave.
1: Hey Mayor, thank you. It's a pleasure to have the opportunity to talk about Allegiant and I certainly appreciate your facilitation and the partnership that we have with BPI to create an organization that has led us industry in growth, leads us industry in profitability, has improved employee engagement as well as one of the safest workforces in the world. It doesn't come without people making great things happen, and you helped me make that happen.
0: Taking the Lead is a production of BPI Group, and the views expressed are that of the host and guests. For more information, please visit bpi-group.us. Music for this podcast is courtesy of Jazzar.